0: I'm stepping away from Twitter and moving over to Mastodon. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. Keith Baker has a new Eberron book coming out that we're going to take a look at. I'm going to do a spotlight on the new Dragonlance adventure that Wizards of the Coast just put out. I'm going to offer some thoughts and answer some questions that I got from patrons of Sly Flourish. Wizards of the Coast made a non-statement about the OGL. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means i'm going to do another spotlight for the tomb of the twilight queen by mt black and we're going to go over the final set of questions for the november 2022 patreon q a all today on the lazy dnd talk show i'm your pal mike shea from sly flourish here to talk about all things D. this work like all of the work of sly flourish is brought to you by the patrons of sly flourish patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive tips tricks adventures city source books dedicated discord channels all kinds of stuff that patrons get access to but most of all they help me put on shows like this to the patrons of sly flourish thank you so much for your outstanding support i have been on twitter for about 12 years i built a lot of sly flourish from twitter and i was very sad it was actually a pretty emotional day for me to step away from it and i didn't delete my account mostly because I don't want somebody to take it over again. And it's still really hard to delete an account that I've had for that long, where I've had as much success with it as I've had, but I no longer like the direction that Twitter is going. I don't know how long it will be around. I mean, there's everybody in the world is talking about this. You don't need to hear me talking about it, but I did decide it was time to step away. Now I have an advantage in this that i oh the 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 work that i do for sly flourish is actually in lots of different places i have a big youtube presence i have my own blog i have a big newsletter with a lot of people subscribing to the newsletter i have lots of different ways that people can find the work that i do i've noticed that ever since they switched from timeline based to algorithmic ranking of tweets that as a promotional platform it's actually pretty terrible i have a lot of data on this i've wrote an article about it i'll link to the article in the show notes below if you care as a publisher really doesn't affect dms that much except to say that from a business perspective leaving twitter doesn't really hurt me very much so i'm in an advantage position because of that it means that i can take this moral high ground if my business depended on it if this was google or amazon and i decided i was going to step away from those those would be like major pieces of my business that i would lose and i would it would not be nearly as easy so i certainly do not hold anybody I I don't hold any grievance against anybody who decides that they either want to or need to stay on Twitter. This isn't, this is a personal decision. It is not a large scale. If you stick around, you know, you're, you're bad, you're bad wrong. Not at all. People that I know there are many people who have built up their entire presences on Twitter. They depend upon them and they can't just walk away. And I understand that. And it's a, it's a, it's a bad spot. It's a bad spot to be in. So I definitely feel for, for people like that. I was very emotional about it because I had been keeping up a daily D&D tip on Twitter every day for 12 years. It was like, I think it's 4,600 DM tips that I had been putting there every day over over these past 12 years. And I was very sad about that. But the good news was I was able to pull down an archive of my entire set of tweets and put together all of those D&D tips into a great big file and give it away to you. So you can get all four, I think it's 4,600, 40, yeah, about 4,500 D&D tips. You can download it all in a single file it's in a csv file and i'm releasing it under a creative commons non-commercial license so if you want to build a tool or a random tip generator or a day calendar or whatever and even if you want to sell it just email me and we'll talk about it if you wanted to use it for some kind of product i'm happy to talk about it with you but i just as a general license i wanted to offer as a non-commercial license so you can download 4500 tips uh in a big file and do anything that you want with them you can you can you can put them on your website or anything that you want to do with it so i'm i'm happy to offer this set of 4500 DD tips so on my blog i have an article called the DD tip tweet archive Uh, i have been doing this back since 2013 so i've actually been keeping up this file of lists. the, the creative commons license they've been under the creative commons license for a while but you can download it from this article you can find a link to this article down in the show notes below down your own copy of of the tips Along with this, I also joined Mastodon. Now, there's lots of questions in the RPG community about, oh, where do you go? Where are we going after Twitter? And a big part of me was like, oh, I'm already happy on Discord. I'm already happy on YouTube. I'm happy with my newsletter. Do I really need another platform? But I was like, well, I'll take a look at Mastodon. I'll try it. And it turns out I'd already tried it about six months ago. The first time when Twitter was looking shaky, when the leadership of, of, of Twitter was looking sh- shaky, I was like, maybe I should try. Maybe I should try this stuff. So a lot of people are going to different ones. I've heard of Hive Apparently two people are running another big social network called Hive. But I was like, I don't, you know, is moving to another centralized social network that could get bought out by somebody or could turn into something else or something where the customers are not the people using it. The customers are advertisers. Is that really what I want? Is that really the, the direction that I want to go? And I said, like, Mastodon fits me better so Mastodon is a decentralized messaging platform it's it, it feels a lot like twitter there's there's other videos and other people that talk all about Mastodon so I'm not going to dive into it too much except it's a distributed server you can choose different ones and the two popular ones among rpg people that I've seen are dice well one really is the popular one called dice camp dice.camp which is run by sage latora who's one of the authors of dungeon world he also works for google and he is hosting it so a lot of people have moved over to dice camp I already had one on one known as Chirp.nworld.org. Nworld is a huge D and D forum that's been around for twenty, more than twenty years. And Morris over at Nworld stood up a mastodon server called chirp.nworld.org so i have a slight account on chirp.nworld.org it's my mastodon account you can subscribe from any other mastodon server i've been getting a fair number of people subscribing not nearly what i had on twitter but that's that's fine with me not a big deal and what i i, I enjoy about it is it just it feels a lot like twitter you can uh, here you can find links to all of the other stuff that i do if you want to subscribe but really the best way to connect with me is the newsletter my patreon or by reading my books I chose Mastodon for a handful of reasons and over other kind of platforms. One, I like that it's a distributed platform. I can email the guy who is running my Mastodon server and ask questions and he sends me email back. That's really nice. I like, it feels very Twitter-like. Lots of lots of people are there. I was able to easily automate it. So I have a Mastodon bot. I actually had an old Twitter bot that I aimed towards Mastodon. So it does things like post my new article links, post my new videos, post my new podcasts, any of the stuff that I'm producing, it automatically sends it to Mastodon and that, that makes it really nice. And it feels a lot like Twitter felt in the early days, which I kind of like. It's sort of like meeting people again and it's small and I can actually keep up with it and I I'm enjoying that. I don't know if it'll always be like that. I don't know if it's going to work great forever, but right now it's a fine place to be. So again, I don't hold any grievances. I'm not going to argue Mastodon versus anything else. We all get to choose where we want to go. Nobody nobody gets to decide for the group where anybody's going to go. But I'm pretty happy over there. So so that's so that's where I'm going. Keith Baker is the creator of Eberron. He worked with Wizards of the Coast on the original Eberron. He has now been publishing a few different Eberron-based books to the DMs Guild. It's the only place that Keith Baker can produce books on Eberron. And he is putting out a new book called Chronicles of Eberron, which looks really, really good. You can find a link to the blog article where he talks all about Chronicles of Eberron in the show notes below. Looks like a nice, big, beefy book, print-on-demand that covers a lot of the areas of Eberron that haven't been covered in other books. One of the great things that Keith is doing is expanding in the areas that aren't really covered in the original core book. So while Wizards of the Coast is probably not going back to Eberron anytime soon with any new official products, Keith Baker can. And he's about as official as you can get right it's the guy, guy who made it 22 chapters 200 pages split into two sections some of it is built for characters some of it is built for D- or for players some of it is built for dms so i will certainly be talking more about this when i get my my hands on it because i'm very excited for this eberron is a wonderful setting i really love it and i'm eager to see what keith has done keith keith's i think he's done one maybe two other books i know he's done at least one other eberron book i can't remember if he's done a second eberron book So I'm real excited about this book and be very interesting to see when it comes out. And I will almost certainly be doing a spotlight on this show. So excited for Keith Baker and excited to see Chronicles of Eberron. I really love Eberron for those who pre-order the bundle of Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen with the books and the D&D Beyond link, they got early access to the D&D Beyond version of this. Because I have a long standing grandfathered license with D&D Beyond that gives me access to all of the new stuff that they put out, I also got access to this. So it's not exactly a review copy that I got access to, but I did get a free copy of the D&D Beyond version of Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen, and I thought we'd take a look at it. I went onto my Patreon, and I I asked people, what are the things you're interested in? Cause this is one of the rare times where I actually have the book a couple weeks before most people do. So I, you know, not everybody can just go to DNB on and pick it up. I think in a couple weeks we'll be able to not next week, but the week after I think, is that right? I'm not sure. I think that's right. So b- people get access to him, but I have it. So I thought we'd take a look at it. And I thought I would ask what people were particularly interested in. So I'll go over some particular sections of the book. And you'll, there are other people that have done deeper reviews. So I'm not going to be covering a full deep dive into this entire adventure. But I wanted to cover some sort of big, big questions that came up. So I asked some questions to my, to to patrons over on discord. And these were some of the questions I got was like, how linear is the adventure? So the adventure is pretty linear. It is a story based adventure. It is a number of chapters. The expectation is you're going to go from one chapter to the other. It is less of the, what we refer to as the yam, or what I refer to as the yam shaped adventure that Wizards of the Coast typically does, where you start in an area and then the adventure expands out and you could do lots of different things in lots of different order and then eventually culminates back in a main path again. This definitely is a story focused adventure. Things are going to happen in chapter one that leads to chapter two, that leads to chapter three, and so on. There's a couple areas, probably the biggest area that expands out and lets you sort of explore things in a number. of different ways is chapter five called the northern wastes where there are a whole bunch of different locations that you can go to while you are discovering the location of this place known as the city of lost names that looks really fun I, i i have not fully read it so i'm what you're getting from me right now is my my skim my skim read my glance through and but most of it looks relatively linear that's not bad that's not a criticism of it I think story focused adventures certainly have their way. One of the funny things about this is the original Dragonlance adventures for A D were really, really railroaded, where characters had to be had to behave in exactly a certain way. You, you were you even played the characters that were in the books and you played out the missions that happened in the books directly. Real talk about railroady. Really, really railroady. So this is not nearly like that. This definitely gives lots of options for characters to explore things, for characters to come up with different decisions. But the story of the adventure is taking place in a sort of linear, in a linear fashion. So I would say it's linear, but I would not say it is bad. And there's the one chapter that expands out. So one question is, how well does it handle feeling like you're in a war? I would say it looks pretty good. That It, it, it definitely feels like you're in a war. It definitely looks like that you're in a war. It definitely puts the focus on the characters, the missions that the characters do. There's a lot of areas in the adventure where it does play out to the board game that is coming along with it. There are sections of the book where it talks about how you can jump over to play the board game Dragonlance Warriors of Kryn and play out certain scenarios that fit the scenarios that are going on the adventure. You absolutely do not need to do this and the adventure makes it clear. You can just go right to the next section and jump right in and basically the war is then going off in the background. If you think it would be cool to play a war game section this, you're really into Dragonlance and if you take a look at the board game I have not I did not dive into the board game. I have no idea how it is. I'm also not a big board game guy, so I'm probably if I was going to run it, I probably wouldn't jump to the board game. But I don't know. Maybe I would. It would, I would. I would have to hear more about how well the board game is, and is it worth learning a whole new system in order to play out these scenarios, or is it better to just stick to D&D? It's a really cool idea, and it's one of the few times that Wizards was able to get two products out at the same time that are both interconnected like this. So that, that's definitely interesting. But I haven't taken a look at Warriors of Crin. So all I can do is look at it and say how how much does it feel warlike if you don't use warriors of crin and i think the answer is to do it much the way that many people have described doing a war which is run that battle run the battles off screen keep always keep the tension going that there's a battle going on but keeping the lens on the characters and what they're doing and how their part in the war plays out they definitely do that a lot in this in this adventure so there aren't any surprising mechanics for how they're handling war which i think is good i don't need new surprising mechanics other than play this board game if you want to do the war part I think that's a fine I think that's a fine way to do it how does it look without the board game and again no real problems you're playing out the bigger pieces and you can you can play them out with the board game but you don't have to and instead you can hear about what happened there's some interesting things that if you run the board game version you can get some rewards that you wouldn't normally get if you succeed in a scenario because you succeeded the people the, your your allies will reward you with items if you fail you don't get anything so uh, you know kind of a neat way to do it but again I like that it's not like oh here we're gonna do these new faction systems or these new point-based systems that handle how the war goes and stuff like that i kind of don't i don't really need that i'm more interested in how the story plays out and i'm focusing on the mechanics that DD already brings to the. does it do a good job selling Dragonlance to new dms i would say yeah it 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 definitely looks good i was i was nervous and kind of like not nervous exactly because you know my stakes in this are relatively low but i was like would it have been better if it was a source book with a small adventure instead of an adventure book with a small source book but i was was looking through the source book part of this and there is a pretty good size of material that you get in the first couple of chapter chapters the war comes to to kryn the history of kryn dragon armies the war of the lance the life of this continent what the region is like the various gods there's a fair bit of material that just talks about the world it's not huge i think i heard it's like 18 pages in the book or something like that so it's not a tremendous amount of material but I think it's definitely having read it and kind of looked into it it feels like it's enough material to get you an idea of what makes Dragonlance different from other campaigns and to give you the material you need in order to play this adventure, theres it could still be argued on what kind of longevity does a product like this have since it's one adventure compared to a source book like Eberron Rising from the Last War, which you could use to run hundreds of Eberron adventures, dozens of campaigns and hundreds of adventures using the same material in the same book at the same price. I, I think I would lean towards I want more campaign stuff than I want adventure stuff. I'm not going to dock it too hard for that. They're 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 making a choice. The thing is, they're they're doing this a lot, right? Spelljammer, it's all adventure. Hardly any, hardly any information about the location. Definitely, Dragonlance has more information about the world and more tools to give DMs the options to build things in this world than I would say the Spelljammer box set has. And it makes me nervous for Planescape because I think Planescape is going to follow the Spelljammer model, and that means they're not going to have a lot about the world, and that's a that's a shame. From what I know, which is not very much. But it has things like the calendars. It has currencies. It has lots of stuff. One of the questions was about how the artwork is. The artwork is amazing. The artwork in these books are always amazing. I can't, I, you know, it's hard to tell in D and D Beyond. The artwork in D and D doesn't come off the same way as a physical book. And I'm not getting my physical book till we all, till we all have the option. On December third or something like that is when I'll be able to pick up the physical book. I'm getting my Lord soft cover at my local game shop, you know, God's willing. And but the art always looks good. And the the pictures that I see in D and D Beyond all really look excellent. So. I'm guessing the art is as good as the art has been in every other book they've come out. Certainly in skim reading it and looking at the stuff they have, it looks really, really great. How long is it? Let me refresh my voice here. How long is it? You, you reach, you probably reach 12th level by the end of it. You certainly, you reach 11th level before the end of it. So it is, it definitely goes from 1st to 11th level. 1st level, they have just a couple of small missions, a couple of small little interludes to get you used to the world, to get you to understand these different things. They are based on the kinds of characters you pick. If you pick Mages of High Sorcery, or if you pick Paladins and things like that, you will go through little vignettes that get you to 2nd level. Then the main adventure starts from 2nd level to 11th level. I wouldn't say it looks, it doesn't look abbreviated to me. The Adventure is like 178 pages of, of the book. It's a good chunk of the adventure. A good chunk of the book is based on the adventure. So it looks like a good meaty adventure. This looks to like one of those, you know, nine months if you were running it really fast, up to 14 months if you were running it long. About as long as any of the other Wizards of the Coast adventures that you would typically pick up. The, the, the big hardcover adventures, very similar in, in size, I would say. I mentioned that the art is very beautiful. There was a day one errata. There's arguments about is this a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, well, they should definitely fix stuff. I you know. Boy, they're coming out with errata a, a lot faster than they normally do. The errata is not huge, but there was some fun stuff. Like there was a will saving throw. How did the how did will save make its way to a book like this? Kind of interesting. I have a theory about this. And my theory is a lot of people that used to work at Paizo now work at uh, Wizards of the Coast. They've hired a bunch of people from Paizo that went to work at Wizards of the Coast, and I wonder if some of the folks from Paizo or whoever from Paizo was working on this let a will save let, let a will save slip through into the text, but they had to fix that. None of these are really big. I think some of them, like mechanically, because like you know what a will save is, you know it's a wisdom save. That's not that, you're not you're not breaking much there. This idea of changing the lunar boons that that's kind of a mechanical a mechanical piece. Some of the skill stuff a little bit. They're all relatively minor things. I di- I didn't see anything in here like wow if you if you didn't know this errata was out, You, it would break, you, you know, the whole game wouldn't work. I don't think I don't think there's anything like that. But it is interesting that we're, we're seeing a lot more day one errata, which makes me question, like, how about you put the digital versions out early before you put it out in print? But I'm not running Wizards of the Coast. So I have no idea how that works. So one question was, what DMs lessons can we transport to other games? I didn't see anything in here that leapt right out at me, like, oh, there's something we could definitely grab onto and bring into our other games. This definitely has a focus on it's uh, on dragon so all the things that are in there the new feats the new magic items all the new stuff that's in there not a lot of that i think is directly transportable certainly you can take monsters you can always take monsters from everything. And there's some really cool monsters in this book. Monsters that I really dig. The Skeletal Knights are great. The Lord Soth stat block is definitely badass. We're going to talk about how badass Lord Soth is. There's a lot... The Death Dragons are really neat. There's lots of different stat blocks in here that you could definitely bring into your regular games and use. But not... I wouldn't say there's anything else. There, again, there's not, like, other subsystems in here. I I had thought, like, maybe there's, like, another way that where the interactions of your characters and what they do change how the war works out somehow mechanically. I didn't see anything like that. And I don't really know that I need anything like that. So I didn't, nothing leapt out at me like, oh, this is definitely something you can just grab and use in your game. How are the maps? The maps are beautiful. The maps are really, really, they they, they look really good. I'll show the the maps at the end here. And they're just, you know, art, artwork level maps, right? This is a map of the local region, and then they have a map that, I, I think this is pretty much like what was included in all of the other Dragonlance ones but really, really beautiful you know really really beautiful maps that are going on here maps of specific locations are also really good looking i'll, I'll just pull up a couple of examples of the maps that they have in game there's that regional map again shows various locations i think that's a big one that you show to your players when they're exploring the area and then each of the internal areas they're, they're mike schly- i think mike schly did a lot of the maps that are internal and they really really look good so again like there is going to be you know these these having these maps in dnd beyond is really nice because you can drop them into your virtual tabletop of choice and you can expose them and they 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 look excellent so really you know here's more yeah all these look like they're they're mike Schley. i can i can recognize his style and they all look like they're mike schly maps so short answer to that is the maps are gorgeous is there a map of kryn yes that was the map i just showed that let's see i think is the same somebody can help me out but i think it is the same kind of map that I think it's the same kind of map... I think it's the same region of the map that they had in the original Dragonlance Adventure. So it's at, least, it's at least what they had in those. And look at this. Like, boy, I could make a tablecloth out of this. I would love to have this, like, in a cloth version and put it up on a wall. It's really, really... It's really, really beautiful. So, yeah. So the map is good. How are the magic items? There's not really much to speak of when it comes to the magic items. The magic items are very specific to this adventure. There's this weird walkie-talkie thing. I think that the far gab, which is, like, a weird... Steampunk walkie talkie. That's kind of funny. pack is the weapon type that the Kinder use. Nary Crash, a big balloon theme. Some Gnome Siege weapons. The Dragon Lance is in here, of course. You got to have the Dragon Lance, legendary Dragon Lance. So that's cool. The Flying Citadel. These are all very specific items. There's only like this cloak. The kagna the Kagon- Kagan, Kagan's I can't, these names, man. Kaganesti. The Kaganesti Forest Shroud, which is a cloak that lets you teleport every so often that's fine i think that's the only one that's like a normal magic item everything else is sort of very story specific so not the magic items are not the kind of thing that you would grab and and use in other games and then of course the big question that everyone's been thinking about everybody's question do i love lord soth now that i can see a stat block and the answer is yes lord soth is badass the Lordsoft stat block follows the new style that we've that we've seen in other ones. He's CR 19. And at that challenge rating, what's interesting is the adventure plays it off. This is all, I mean, it's full of spoilers. So I'm spoiling the hell out of this adventure. It, it makes the assumption that you can't fight him and beat him. But I bet you at 10th and 11th level, I think you could probably take him. 11th level characters have so much resources that they're supposed to, which is going to get to my rant. My rant is coming in a minute. I know people have been waiting for a rant. Don't worry. It's coming. And... I think that they could probably take him. Even though he's really tough and even though you're not fighting him alone. I don't know exactly I can't remember exactly what that what who you're fighting him with. But he's really tough. CR 19, 228 hit points, AC 18, legendary resistance, magic resistance, martial undead. He can, you know, and he and undead creatures of his choice are immune to features that turn undead. He, no, turn on you again. You can't turn Lord Soth. He attacks three times with a Forsaken Brand, which does pure just bludgeoning and necrotic. It does twenty-eight damage on a hit, plus twelve to hit. Very high attack rate, very high attack bonus. Twenty-eight damage on a hit. Three of those around, and he can do an extra one as a legendary action. Takes him two legendary points to attack again. He also has Cataclysmic Fire. This is the typical Death Knight fireball that does 35 fire, 35 necrotic, DC 19 deck save to get out of it. What's really interesting about this is anyone who is dead in the area is animated into a skeleton under his control that act immediately after him. If I were running him, there'd be a lot of dead people in his his arena so that when he's fireballing people, dead people are coming up. He can only do that once a day. Also once a day, he can do Word of Death. Word of Death is a power word kill that's even worse than power word kill. He points at a creature within 60 feet and commands them to die they make a dc 19 constitution constitution saving throw so they get a save which is different than power Word kill you just die but they take a hundred necrotic damage on a failure or 50 on a success and if it drops them to zero they die so it doesn't quite kill them outright. It's not a pure power word kill. It's basically a great big damage. But 100 damage, that's a lot of damage to be thrown out. So his damage to challenge rating ratio, which is my little thing that I look for. Everybody's got their own bugaboos. The number one thing I look at is how much damage can this creature do compared to its challenge rating? What's that ratio like? And the ratio I'm looking for is around seven. Some monsters are crazy. And I'll get to some of the crazy ones. If you look at challenge rating one half, they're doing tons of damage per CR. But usually at the higher CRs, because they have so many other features, their damage gets brought down. But I would say Lord Soth's damage is pretty good because he can do the three frost frostbranded tra- frost. So if you look at his cataclysmic fire, it's 70 damage per everybody that got hit. That's like 100. I think it counts at 140 points of damage. And then he does an additional 28. So 140 plus 28 is 168 damage that he can do on one round divided by his challenge rating, which is 19. So he's doing 8.8 damage per CR. That's pretty high. Even if you take out his big blast and you just do his Forsaken Brands, that's 28 times four is 112 and divide that by 19. So he does 5.9, not quite six, just about six damage per challenge rating when all he's doing is hitting you. That doesn't include word of death. That doesn't include anybody that he's commanding to attack you. That doesn't include any of his other, any of the other things that he's doing. So, that's, so yeah, he's hitting at his weight class. I, I that That's the main thing I look for, is can he hit at his weight class? It's also a nice, straightforward, simple stat block. Like, I could run this and feel like I know what I'm doing. It's not, there's not, I mean, he's one of the most powerful villains that you can have in D&D, even though he's only CR 19, which is pretty low. But that means he's a fightable guy. I don't mind that he's CR 19. He shouldn't be CR 26 or anything like that. 19 makes sense. He's still kind of mortal. He's not a god. He's not like a lich, a lich king or something like that. So... I really I really dig it. I'm I'm I am happy with Lord Soth. I'm also happy with many of the other monsters that they have in here. They definitely hit hard. These these the the monsters that are in here by the most part are really hitting at their weight class. There's not there's not a lot of monsters I've seen where I was like, oh, that, they, that, you know, that, that didn't work out. So I'm, I'm very, I'm, I, I like the monster design a lot. So they have these like, lesser and greater Death Dragons. I was very curious about the Death Dragons. I was a little disappointed that like, their challenge rating... These are ones you could definitely use in your own game. But I was, the, the, to me, the balance of the challenge ratings on these doesn't make them... It probably fits the adventure. I don't think it makes them as usable as they could be. Because the challenge rating difference is CR 14 for the greater and CR 10 for the lesser. That's not a big difference. Right, a challenge rating of four between them is not, I would have had like a CR eight and a CR 18. Like I'd do a 10 point spread. So you really, cause you can, you know, I can turn a CR 10 into a CR 14 just by tweaking the numbers a little bit. And that's kind of what they did. So it's a little unfortunate that the death dragons didn't have a wider spread and that the greater death dragon wasn't really greater. Cause like CR 14, that's like an, that's barely an adult. That's like a young red, you know, that the CR 14 is pretty low on the dragon spectrum. But how do they hit? Let's take a look. I, I, I think I looked at this before, but we'll look at it again. So the grader does 17 piercing plus four necrotic on a bite and then 10 on a claw. And it can do a bite and two claws. We're, we're going to ignore its breath for a second here. So that is 21 plus 20. That's 41. And then you can do the claw three more times. So that's 50. So 71. So 71. So 14. So, let's see. 71 divided have 14. Five. So the damage damage is doing five per five per challenge rating with just claws and bites. That's a, if it did nothing else. It does claws and bites. Cataclysmic breath is forty five damage. That counts as ninety because you're hitting two targets. You're hitting probably up to two targets, and then and then you could do three claws on top of that. So ninety plus thirty is one twenty. 120 divided by 14 is 8.5. So if you average all that together, the amount of damage it's doing is probably on par. It's 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 definitely working. Death dragons are definitely a monster I could see using in, in other in other areas. The skeletal knight is one that I also really liked. It's pretty high challenge rating. It's a CR 7 for a skeletal knight. 112 hit points, very straightforward stat block, makes three enervating blade or throwing axe attacks. If you ever wanted to have a really powerful white this would be a very powerful white. skeletal Knight makes three Enervating Blade or Throwing Axe attacks. Enervating Blade plus eight to hit, 15 Necrotic Damage, and the target, if it target's a creature, it cannot regain hit points into the start of its next turn. That's pretty cool. So it's doing 45 damage at CR seven, which is 6.4. Yeah, not bad pretty good and the fact that it makes you unable to heal is a pretty good a pretty good bonus on this and then it can throw an axe for 14 damage it's interesting what I think they're just making up damage numbers now because like a throwing axe typically the axe had amount of damage now it's doing 2d8 slashing damage I don't know why because because it makes sense so it can make three throwing axe attacks which are f- not not nearly as good right like I, it's a little less damage they don't do with the other thing but it gives it a range attack and range attacks are important so pretty good so I like the monsters a lot. I think I think that they're really good. So rant, rant time. Time time for a rant a little bit. Jeremy Crawford had a video, Jeremy Crawford and Todd Kendrick had a video that they did on D&D Beyond in the D&D Beyond YouTube channel. I will link to the video down in the show notes below where they talked about the new feats that are included in Dragonlance. And one of the things that Jeremy said was that this was their, they, they had in the play test of Dragonlance, they included feats at first level and they also included feats at fourth level. They said they've now been testing this as part of the one D&D play test and that the, posi- the the feedback has been very positive, which means they're very happy that they've done this kind of thing in this book. The the, the part that freaks me out about this a little bit is sure you get a feat at first level, right? We, we talked about that. We talked about, oh, you're getting a feat at first level. And yeah, are there issues with it? Like, look, we can argue, you know, and different people will argue there's, there's, there's you know there's there's different points of view on this and and what's what's right and what's not one thing that they did in this one which was better than what they did with spelljammer is it does say if you pick one of the backgrounds that's not from this book you can you can pick one of these two feats either skilled or tough i think most people are going to pick toughness cuz who doesn't want hit points right everybody wants hit points but skilled you know i don't know some people might pick skilled if you want to be if you want to if you want to set up it no longer makes these an optional rule. It never talks about the fact that bonus feats are an optional rule in Dragonlance. And in the video, Jeremy said, well, this is because Dragonlance is particularly hard. We're giving you these extra feats because Dragonlance is particularly hard. Except they've done it in two other books. They did it in Spelljammer, and they did it in Candlekeep. So no, it's not just this thing. And by the way, you're doing it in 1D&D. So no, it's really a, a, a change in how 5th edition is working. The thing that freaks me out about it. it's okay i get the bonus feat at first level and skilled and tougher not that bad but again you're making character creation more complicated because now there's this other option you have to pick you know on top of everything else you're picking background class you know race and now feet right you gotta have you're complicating character creation to begin with and then you offer a bonus feat at fourth level So you already get a feat at fourth level, right? Most, I think most classes, I think all classes get another feat at fourth level. So now you're getting two feats at first level. And maybe one of them, you're just doing the the ability score improvement, right? You're just doing, uh, you're just getting a plus two bonus to one of your ability scores or plus one to two different ones, except some of these also include a ability score bonus. Some of the new fourth level feats that are included in here also say you get a plus one to your strength or whatever, which means you could say oh i get plus 3 to strength at fourth level all right these aren't new optional these aren't new optional feats as far as i know somebody somebody, fourth level bonus feat at fourth level you gain another bonus feat of your choice from the first level list above or the following list and again some of them are from player's handbook many of them are from this book but mobile sentinel warcast you get free who doesn't want free warcaster so knight of the crown for example is a fourth level bonus feat that you can choose and it includes an ability score increase increase your strength dexterity or constitution by one to a maximum of 20 which means you can pick an asi you can pick your ability score improvement and that gives you plus two to strength and then pick knight of the crown and that gives you plus one to strength, which means you're getting plus three to an ability score and a feat. The rest of this at fourth level. The power creep is one thing. Boy, you're just jacking ASIs. We're just we're just moving those numbers up there. Yeah, the grim eight sixty eight brings up the fact: if you pick a human, you get another feat at first level, which means you get four feats at first level, and they they can also include ability score improvement bonuses, which means your ability score bonuses are going to be going way up, way fast. I think it's probably possible to hit twenty. On an ability score improvement if you if you work the math right i think you could hit a 20 on your ability score improvement by fourth level i have to figure that out but it wouldn't surprise me you can probably you almost certainly get a 19. and that's the, the numbers are definitely getting put up but but also the complexity is because i play a lot of DD. i'm a big fan of the game i think about it a lot you saw me doing my crazy damage to cr math that i do I can't figure out what kind of ability scores I would wanna set up to make sure that I can benefit from all of these crazy feats that I'm getting. You're gonna have to constantly monkey around with your ability scores, just to benefit from all of these extra bonuses that you're getting to to optimize, because now you've got bad choices. Now you've got suboptimal choices for both ability scores and for feats where you could have had really spiky ability scores if you played it right. So the idea of getting bonus fourth level feats, that now, what are we doing? And if you think about these, what they're what they're kind of doing with these is they're saying, well, you get these bonus feats and you're getting the ability score improvement as well. That's kind of like what you would get in 1D&D when you get the new feats that are in 1D&D because those feats include an ability score improvement and what was normally a regular feat. They're, they're what I refer to as the 150% of a feat. You're getting basically a feat and a half. The, the one D and D feats are basically a feet and a half. The fourth level ones anyway are basically a feet and a half. You're just escalating the numbers. So what it, what's interesting to me about this and we'll see how it plays out. We'll see if people run it and how they, how they feel about this. But one of the things that I, I think about is that there's a good number of people who bring things up to me. They ask me questions. I, I get this on Patreon a lot who are looking for the grittier version of D and and fifth edition so far was definitely more gritty than fourth edition was fourth edition at first level you were a really powerful character you had like 30 some hit points you had lots of capabilities you had lots of at wills dailies encounter abilities and stuff like that fifth level at least at its lower levels was kind of grittier first level definitely was second level like you get big power increases and stuff like that but now the direction that the game is headed is increasing in power of characters significantly and so are we worried monsters aren't going to be tough? No, you can always throw more monsters at them, right? I mean, you can always increase the challenge rating math to account for the fact that characters are more powerful. But what it means are you're, you're hitting that sort of heroic and super heroic level sooner. I mean, think about the fact that in 1D&D, 18th level characters get the Paragon ability that normally was at 20th. You could essentially think of 1D&D characters and, and the now later 5th edition characters as being essentially a level or two higher than their level normally was because they're getting all these extra capabilities. You get toughness for free. You get an extra feat at fourth level. Bang, you're moving that up. So we're essentially watching characters definitely creep up just purely in numerical math. But even, and that and you can decide whether or not that's okay or not. Some people are like, no, I like the su- super heroic feeling of, of, of D&D. Okay, that's cool. It would be nice if it was an optional rule. Like, I love the idea of, hey, choose one as an optional rule for a game that's a little bit stronger in a game where you're that's more of a heroic fantasy you get an optional first level feat i think that's a great optional rule for a a side book like atasha's book or something like that just offer that up because a lot of people are house ruling that great perfect but the idea of making that the default is something they argue that the encounters that are in Dragonlance are harder to make up for this I, i i didn't dig in enough and i haven't run them to see i bet you not I bet you I bet you they're not that much harder than they normally would be. But we'll see. I could be wrong. I know the monsters are pretty tough, but yeah, I don't I don't know. So this idea to me the power increase is one problem, the complexity is another. This is something that that Sean Merwin and Teo Sabadia have been talking about on Mastering Dungeons. It's not necessarily about making characters more powerful. It's about all of these crazy interlinked options that you're putting on players early on in the game that by fourth level, you need to figure out where you're gonna put your three feats, where you're gonna put your ability modifiers to make sure that you're maximizing the benefits of those feats. Holy cow, why are we making that so hard, right? And it is, if you look at how 1D&D does it, it's really hard. I don't know why ability scores aren't just their own thing. And I also don't know why you have to constantly escalate the numbers up. I don't, to me, the idea that you either pick a feat or an ASI was a good way of deciding, do you want to be general or specific? Do You want to be specifically good at something really good or generally just have this plus one bonus that you can get. That was a good option. That idea that, Oh, but people like both. Well, everyone likes eating ice cream all the time too. It doesn't mean it's good for you. Right. And I don't know. I, I feel like, when I hear things like, oh, we've had an overwhelming response of people who really like getting feats or first level, who are you asking? And do they really understand what that does to the rest of the game? I'm not sure. I've, I'm sure people like Twilight Sanctuary. People love silvery barbs. That doesn't mean they're good for the game. Because eventually if you get to the point where you have DMs who are like, I don't like running it anymore. I, I can't ever challenge them. My creatures get controlled all the time. This is the way I felt in 4E. I felt like as a DM in 4E, my hands were tied way more often than I was open to build fun stories. So I worry about, I worry about this. So that's my big rant for a book like this. I don't mind it like a book, like you can experiment with every single book that you do. What bothers me about it is what this kind of means about the future and particularly for one D and D and everything like that. They're going to go whatever direction they're going to go. I'm going to go whatever direction I want to go. I think if they really go in the super heroic angle there's going to be a bunch of people making games like five torches deep which is going to take current D and make that grittier form for it i think we're going to see more of that and that might be good because that means we have different options that we can play but i think it's it's definitely something that i think about and i definitely look at this and be like it was confusing to me like i i had to spend some time i was like so you get two feats at fourth level and one of them could be a plus two and another one could be a plus one so that means if you had a 15 in an ability, you could jump it to an 18. Or if you had a 17, you could take it to a 20. So if I can somehow, and I think you can. <clears throat> so now I think about it. If you use the the array for your character building, and you wanna be a paladin, and you wanna be the strongest paladin in the world. So you're gonna pick a 15, you're gonna put your 15 in your strength. And then because you're using the flexible attribute bonuses, you're going to put plus 2 to that so now that's a 17 and you put your plus 1 somewhere else and then you get to this level and you say i'm going to pick knight of the crown actually they all do it look let's see knight of the rose doesn't so knight of the crown so you're going to pick knight of the crown and you're going to put your plus 1 bonus from knight of the crown in that so now you took your 17 and turned it into an 18 and you're going to take your asi bump your your ability score improvement and you're going to dump that into strength as well now you have a fourth level character with a 20 strength and a feat and your other feet, your first level feet. So you, get, you still get two feet, right? And a 20 strength at fourth level. That's spiky, right? On top of your proficiency. But proficiency bonus was the thing that was supposed to make it escalate. And now your abilities are escalating faster than your proficiency bonuses by a pretty good margin. So What does that mean, right? That's You're plus eight to hit with no, I think, a fifth level. When, I forget when proficiency bonus goes up. Maybe it's sixth level. I forget when it goes to plus three. But you're plus seven to hit pretty early it's Pretty high, so yeah. There's your rant. There's your rant for the day. Does it make this thing bad? No, like Dragonland still looks really cool. It could be really fun to play. I think if you were like an advanced in an advanced DD kind of world where you're like, we're gonna go ahead and try these extra feats, I think that that could, you know, sure for that one adventure. But then there's, you know, the problem is you're doing this in the middle of a play, so for 1DD. We're seeing it with 1DD, and we're asking, like, man, Power creep, big power creep. Is that really what we asked for? Is that really what we want? Does that really make the game better? Sure, people want it. Who doesn't want more feats? I want more feats. Shouldn't we all want more feats? I like eating ice cream three meals a day. That'd be great, man. Not good for me. So thus ends my rant. So there's your Dragonlance spotlight for the day. It does look cool. I'm looking forward to getting my physical version of the book. Will I run it? Maybe. We'll see. I gotta look up like, you know, the schedules and everything like that. But we we, we have to see how it plays out. I'm always a little apprehensive to talk about the OGL and D&D because it doesn't really matter that much to DMs. It matters more to publishers. It does matter to DMs in the kind of material we can expect to see. But I did talk about it on last week's show that Morris from NWorld wrote a thing talking about the OGL, talking about what the OGL is, talking about the SRD. Morris was actually on his podcast, the unofficial tabletop podcast that he does. And he talked more about it, about a half hour segment where he talked about one he talked about the OGL. What it I mean for 1D&D? What an, uh, the SRD or the lack of an SRD would do. But mostly just clearing the air about what the OGL is from a guy who's been using the OGL and wrote his own SRD for level up five E and has been doing so for 20 years. He's been using the OGL for 20 years. So he, he has a pretty good understanding of it. As far as I can tell, lots of different people with lots of different perspectives on what the OGL is and isn't and what you can do and what you can't all kinds of stuff like that. But he's mostly saying this is when you say something like they're going to kill the OGL. They can't kill the OGL. The OGL is an unkillable thing. It exists now. It's in the open. It can be used. It is being used and and it cannot be revoked. There's still people like no, it can be. Like they'd have to sue and and prove in court that their own license that they created is not valid anymore. Not very likely. Anyway, down in the show notes below, if you want to hear more talk more about the OGL, you can. But one of the things that came out of that was at comicbooks.com, comicbooks.com had a article where they said ads man Look at all the ads where they said, oh, Wizards of the Coast responded to the thing about OGL. And eh, did they not really comics reached out to Wizards of the Coast about whether they plan to update the open gaming license and system Reference document. Wizards of the Coast responded with the following statement. We will continue to support the thousands of creators making third party content, D and D content with the release of one D and D in 2024. While it is certain our open gaming license will continue to evolve just as it has since the inception we're too early in development of 1D. You need to give more specifics on the OGL or systems reference document at this time. They're not saying anything, right? And And when they say things like, when they say things like continue to evolve, the OGL doesn't evolve. There are two versions of the OGL, a 1.0 and a 1.0A, and both of them are almost identical. I don't even remember what the difference is. Very, very tiny difference between the two. So when they say things like continue to evolve, That sends up a little siren. Like, it doesn't evolve, right? The OGL doesn't evolve. There is only the OGL. You're either on it or you're not. The question is, are they gonna do something like they did in fourth edition with the GSL? The GSL, the game system license, was a revocable license that Wizards of the Coast put out that was very, very unpopular. Almost no one used it because you couldn't build a product around it because you were at risk. If Wizards decided they no longer wanted you to print your product, they could revoke your license and you'd have to destroy your inventory. Who wants to write with that license? So nobody did, right? Nobody nobody wrote with that license. So when they say things like that, it sends off little warning lights. But the reality is this statement, and it was kind of pushed about as like, hey, look, they, they announced it and it's going to be fine. They say, they say we continue to support thousands of creators making third-party D&D content. They, they could say that with the DMs Guild, and it's not the same thing. That, that isn't an answer. Because what are they going to say? No, we've decided we hate third-party content producers and we're not going to let anybody do anything. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, of course, we support our third-party publishers. Well, how? Well, with this license, nobody wants you know so the answer is we don't have an answer we don't know we don't know what they're going to do there's lots of questions surrounding this and it's probably something we're going to have to explore you know a year from now i don't think we're gonna i don't think we're gonna get anything in in the near term but i did think if you're at all interested in oh you see the cattail cat cat made an appearance i know it's on the bingo card if you're interested at all in the OGL, if you're interested in the SRD, this whole topic of like what you can and can't do and all that sort of stuff, I would recommend reading Morris's article on Nworld. It's a really good article and then recommend listening to his podcast about it because I think he has really good and interesting things to say. And the rest of the time, we're going to have to see. So, my friend, MT Black wrote an adventure called tomb of the twilight queen. This ended up back on my stack of adventures because as part of his Kickstarter for anatomy of an adventure, he included a PDF copy of tomb of the twilight queen. It showed up on my desk. I saw that it's available for sale on drive RPG. You can find the link to pick up the tomb of the twilight queen on drive Through rpg for five dollars in the show notes below and it's a really good example of like what a good small focused adventure can look like that's well produced that's well edited that's well play tested and at a very reasonable price lots of people want small adventures lots of people aren't looking for giant multi-year or you know full year campaign adventures they want just small adventures that you can run maybe run in a session and just focus down and tomb, tomb of the twilight queen by mt black is definitely an adventure like that it is a dungeon crawl sort of adventure devious traps and fabulous treasures abound in this adventure for the world's greatest role-playing game done back in 2021 it has been play tested he's 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 gone through pretty thorough play testing the the list of play testers in the end is very is very good the main theme of the adventure it's set in his world of iskandar there is an iskandar source book as well i really like it it's a very i've I've done a spotlight of iskandar before very focused city source book that you can do cats in the background, we have our bit of history. What is this, what is the general setting? This is always good stuff because this is the stuff you want to draw out and turn into your secrets and clues while the characters are going through the adventure. The book is set into basically two parts. One part where they are given the job that they need to go, need to go to this location. What do they have to do? In this case, they are looking for a book called The Book of the New Sky. Very straightforward stuff. Really, if you think about Good d and d adventures. Many times a good D and d adventure is a straightforward, traditional D&D adventure that has a new flavor and new wrappings around it. The proper nouns are all different. The location names are different. The histories are different. You don't need to constantly change the structure of a D&D adventure. There's really not that many models of a D&D adventure that work really, really well. The models themselves can be pretty straightforward. And like going and recovering an object at a dungeon is a really good, straightforward D&D adventure. It's a good, a good way to go. Go to this place, pick up this book, and all the here's this history of what's going on at the place, here's the history of the NPCs, here's the history of the book themselves. You can definitely throw things in there that shake things up, that make things interesting, but the models can be pretty straightforward. And it's hard to beat the simplicity of the model of go to a place to recover an object. That's a really, a really straightforward one. So the whole first part of it is going to the location, getting the job, getting your proposal Travel to the tomb. If you want, you can do an optional encounter there. This is by the way, this is for third level characters. It's an adventure for third level characters. You get there and you have your nice dungeon. And then this is a good sized, you know, good sized dungeon. I think it's multiple levels here that are interconnected. And you traverse the tomb, you deal with traps, you fight monsters, all the kind of stuff that you would that you would typically do. And the format and the style is very nice, very easy to read. As a PDF, it's excellent. It's almost big enough that you could read it on a phone. If your eyesight's pretty good, or if you're like me and you use little bumper glasses, you could definitely read this directly off of a phone without having to, without having to squeeze in too much. It's got some nice random tables going on here. Cool lore. <clears throat> this is this this kind of lore, this is the stuff that you're paying for. Because you could come up with an adventure where the characters have to go to a location and pick up an object it's the wrapping that's around it it's the story that's around it it's the other information that's being given to you that you can then use and make this one a unique journey into this location to pick things up so really excellent adventure i, I like it a lot i you know here's some kind of fun fun traps and hey by the way since they're falling 60 feet worth knowing what happens when you fall a good distance so really good adventure uh, straightforward some fun you know, fun artwork to kind of show what's going on and to me, a good important piece of it is down at the end, which is a great big list of playtesters. These are the people who playtested this adventure. You know, When you take a straightforward adventure, when you wrap it in your own flavor, when you build it, and then you have lots of people run it, you have lots of people play through it, you take that feedback, you use that feedback to try to understand how to make this thing better, and then you tweak it and run it. Now you've got a good, solid, hardened adventure that's still straightforward and easy to run. And M.T. Black is an expert in this. M.T. Black has been doing many, many adventures like this. So you can check out all of his adventures on the dm's guild but in particular check out tomb of the twilight queen the link to this adventure is down in the show notes below it is a five dollar pdf from drive through rpg and one that i recommend let's do some patreon questions every month patrons of sly flourish ask questions in the sly flourish patreon monthly q a thread i answer every question there some of those questions i bring here to the show other ones i turn into an article a longer article or a longer video Rango says how do you incorporate random encounters into a game session i usually mean prepping them I don't mean prepping them or creating an encounter table. I mean, when play is actually happening, I find myself reluctant to include them because my players are very goal oriented and might wrongly perceive them as plot hooks. And so make them into an unintentional red herrings or as annoying distractions. But I feel like I'm missing a trick for making the world feel bigger than the plot. How do you handle random encounters in the flow of play? Good question. So one thing is you don't have to roll your random encounters during the session. Instead, you can use your random encounter tables to roll ahead of time, to give you an idea for the potential encounters the characters might might run into during the game. So it's not necessarily... Because they're going to know. Like, if they see you rolling dice and hemming and hawing while you're building an encounter, they're going to get an idea that it's a random encounter. And that already breaks some of the the, the vermisletude, vermisletude. I can't say that word. So the so so what when i use them i like to roll during prep i like to think about when i'm thinking about the scenes that are running when i know that they're going from point a to point b i think about what kind of encounters they might run into and i if you've seen my game prep you'll see that that many times i'll i'll do this too i will i will i will actually make up my own list of random encounters but then i'll look at those lists and decide hey what might be fun for this particular this particular situation and of course part of my random encounter is also a random situation, a random monument. What is the area that they're going to be doing this on? So instead of it being purely random, you're actually doing some of the homework ahead of time to kind of build a fun encounter that you may or may not drop in. You might decide to change your mind based on their circumstances of the game, based on the pacing, based on what's going on in the story. You could you could always throw it out. But it's, a, it's a handy to have it ahead of time when you're building it out. As far as connecting it to the story, that's why we abstract our secrets and clues. It's because some of those secrets and clues may get discovered in a random encounter, which actually does make it part of the story. So we instead of it being a red herring, instead of the encounter leading in a different direction, the encounter might lead them in the same direction they've been heading, or in a direction you had planned for things to be generally going, because you wrote down those secrets and clues as well. So if you think about like what an encounter is, and then and so then we can think about random encounter, we can think about, are we talking about combat encounter, or are we talking about just a situation, and what makes up a situation? And when we think about what makes up a situation, they're kind of made up of those same components we have from the regular Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You have a location. Where is it taking place? Where's What's happening there? This is where you might ro- randomly roll a monument and say, oh, you're doing it around the old ruined obelisk. Right? Like, while you're in this situation, you come to an old ruined rob- obelisk and that's where you run into these guys. People... Some some kind of creatures are there. Maybe they're monsters that you're going to fight. Maybe they're bandits on the road. Maybe they're travelers that you're meeting. They, they don't always have to be hostile. Maybe it's a ghost that comes out and says, "Hey, what are you doing in my old mon- my old monolith?" This is my monolith. You go find your own monolith. So you have people that are there, and that together usually comes up with a situation. Then you then you have your secrets and clues which you have not applied, and you don't apply the secrets and clues during prep. You write the secrets and clues during prep, but you decide during the game, are those secrets and clues going to come out of this? Is there a note found on one of the bandit lords that, that, that leads you in that direction? That They give more information. They show a map to the locations that they're going to. They give some bit of history of the area that you wanted the characters to know. So you don't apply that but you really when you build those situations you really think of like what's the location there who's there and what's the situation what's going on there and it could be two monsters are fighting each other it could be that one monster is already dead it could be that somebody's on the way but isn't there yet there's different ways that those that those encounters could could be set up but the real answer is the way to incorporate them is in my feeling and people do it differently right this is my my answer is not the answer my answer is just a, a, a one approach is that you would come up with your random encounters ahead of time. Use randomly generated stuff to help you get ideas for the game that you're going to run. And you can build the situation up and say, okay, now this is stronger than just a random encounter because I took randomness, but I also took my brain and I applied it together and I know the story and I know what's going on. And now I've got this situation. And I'm going to drop that in. It's going to be fun and I'm going to learn something. So that's a thought. Ryan B says, I just watched your latest episode this Monday and I'm interested in running more overland travel and point crawls. Do you have any advice for how to run these when players have access to flight? I gave a Pegasus to a player probably too early, as well as some wings from Icarus and Daedalus. I'm running a Greek myth- Greek mythos campaign. In recent sessions, I've, I've used either thick forest canopies or the threat of random adult dragons to drive the group aground, hiding in the cover below. The Tier 2 group is about to journey to Egypt, and I've written myself into a corner. How do I make traversing across an inhospitable land interesting when the players can just fly over it? So you don't want to discount the fact that they can fly. You don't want to punish them and say, oh, you can't fly. I gave you flight, but there's mages with lightning bolts on floating rocks that are constantly throwing lightning bolts. You can let them fly. You can still do a point. And the way that there are still paths that the characters are going to have to follow to go from one location to another. And it could be they can see a dry riverbed and they fly along the dry riverbed. And if you want, you could have an encounter that they can see from up above going on in the dry riverbed. Maybe it's a couple of people getting attacked by a giant alligator. Do they want to go down there? A giant crocodile. Maybe they want to go down there, a sand crocodile. They want to go down there and save the people that are getting attacked by the sand crocodile. Now, of course, sand crocodile from a bunch of people that can fly, not a real challenge until it spits acid. Oh my God. It spits acid. How far? 900 feet. So you can still have encounters along your paths, you can still have monuments, or you can still have locations that are connected by paths, but this time they follow those paths by flight. They still have to make their distance, they can't see where they're going. And they could follow a compass line, and they could say, well, I know the city is due north, but I might miss it just a little bit. So instead, I have to go from this place, to this place, to this place, to this place. And they can follow the paths and maybe some of those paths are underground and they can't fly there. But maybe may, even if they are flying, you could still say they follow the dry riverbed to the giant statue that's sitting out of the ground. Right. And then go to the giant statue. But you'll get lost in the deserts. Even if you're flying, you'll get lost in the deserts. But there are tunnels underneath the giant statue that you can follow that take it to the next monument, which then gets you back up to that to the brass city or whatever. So there's lots of ways to do it. The thing I would avoid is regularly punishing them for flying so you can there are definitely times where you could say it makes sense that flying through dust storms is not great and you're going to have to seek shelter even if you can fly but you also don't want to have constant threat of oh giant vultures again so don't you you don't want to take away the fact that they can fly they are tier two and tier two characters can fly that's that's part of what one of the things that tier two characters get is they can fly so don't take it away from them you can still run a point crawl they can still see things they can still experience things they can still see old ruins they can still see interesting monuments they can still see that the encounters are going on they might see beasts it's still interesting to fly and see a great big beast and say wow that thing's huge it would have sucked if we had to fight that on the ground but we're up here so we're okay right you can still do a lot of that stuff so yeah just because they can fly doesn't mean you don't have you can't run a point crawl you still can it just means that the point crawl is going to be motions and markers and paths that they're going to see while they're flying over top of it and you can still turn them into adventure locations too starmont says i've just got through a really rough one-on-one session with my significant other where she couldn't land a single spell and she told me she was not having fun that really hurts what can be done to smooth to soothe frustration for players from a series of bad roles without making the game feel cheap This is really, it's a very good question. It's a hard situation, especially if you're trying to convince somebody to play the game and the dice are just not with them. And it's like early on. I don't know if this is the case here, but like, but if you're like first time in the one-on-one game and somebody rolls badly, like it kind of sucks. So that there's a few things. There's a few tricks. That idea of failing forward is always a good one. It's a harder concept to get your head around. And you can do a lot of reading on it, do a lot of research of like, Even on a failure, how does the story go in an interesting direction, right? Things are going against the characters, but things are just getting more interesting. If they're failing stealth checks, it's not like they get captured and thrown in prison. It's like, well, no, you've made somebody alert to your presence now, and now things get more difficult or things change. So if you think about a failure state as more of something changing that can help. Now, if it's like attack rolls and stuff like that, there's not, you know, you you can't fail forward too much on an attack roll. I did hear somebody that brought up the fact that, like, a failed attack roll isn't because you missed. It's because the enemy is powerful. And I I use this a lot. Like, you fire a bow shot at a character and you roll a six, and I say, you know, the Skeletal Knight cuts the arrow out of the, you know, the arrow's coming at it, and it cuts it out, showing how dexterous they are. And you're like, you, you can project interesting things about your monsters that the character might not have expected like a really fast skeletal knight because of a failed role. It's not saying they didn't, they they were, their shot was spot on. It was the monster being a little bit better. So that changes that can change that, how that comes out a little bit, a way to deal with just a bad string of dice is more dice, more rolls. that eventually is going to even out, right? Eventually thanks to, you know, the, the, what is it called? The central limit theorem, right and regression to the mean thanks to mathematical principles like those we know that if we just do more dice rolls eventually it's going to even out to 10.5 on a d20 you roll enough it's going to average out to 10.5 on your roll so you're going to generally be rolling, you know 10s and 11s not really your average will be 10.5 so more roll ask for more rolls if they're failing rolls a lot Keep, find new ways to bring them more roles. Find new ways that they can interact with the world that bring them more roles. Give them more opportunities for other attacks. Give them more chances to get advantage. Give them more opportunities to, to get inspiration for things. The other thing you can do is remove rolling from some of the factors. So instead of having them roll ability checks all the time, have them automatically succeed on things because of the skills and the proficiencies they already have. Let them learn things that they would know because they're trained in history and don't bother to roll maybe the roll is a, a floor maybe like the average they're gonna know it but if they grow really well they're gonna learn a lot but if they roll a two it doesn't mean they don't know it it just means they don't know any more than they baseline know so you can think of like a passive that's the way passive checks kind of work a passive perception check has sort of a lower floor of 10 plus whatever your perception bonus is. But if you roll better than that, you might learn more. So you can do that too. But the other one is tug on the things that make their characters unique. What are their races? What are their classes? What skills are they proficient in? What are their backgrounds? And use those and tug on those to to tell them about the story so you don't have to roll the whole time. And that way you're not rolling for everything and they're just rolling and being miserable. But for things like attack rolls, generally what you want to do is more attack rolls. Now with one-on-one sessions in particular, they're not... The overall amount of rolls going on on the player side is much less than if you had five players rolling on the other side. And that's where things like sidekicks come in. Give sidekicks an opportunity. Maybe the sidekicks are carrying a weapon in their other hand so they can get those two attacks and then let the player run the sidekick so they're getting a lot of opportunities for rolls. If you have a lot of opportunities for rolls, you're going to roll some good and you're going to roll some bad, but you're not likely to have a string of really bad rolls when you have lots of rolls that you can make. And at low level, it's harder too because you get fewer attacks. If you only get one attack around and you roll and you miss, you're done. You know, the nice thing about one-on-one is at least it's fast. Yeah. So those are, those are all kinds of different ways to do it. Offer more roles, give more opportunities to do things without a role, give more opportunities to find ways to add more roles and, 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 and try to go with that. And, and, you know, hopefully it, it picks back up, but yeah, it could be bad. It could be bad having a a one-on-one session Where somebody had a bad roll. I've I've definitely seen it where one player in a group just is rolling poorly. And because everyone else has taken a lot of time, they don't get that many chances. And they roll like three times and it's three bad ones. I've definitely had players at my table where they came over, drove over, played a game for three hours, had four rolls, and they all sucked. And that's just, it's lame. And as a DM, you can't even, you might not even know because you're into everybody. You're paying attention to everybody. And then it's like, no, that one person. So it's one of those things like, how do you market? and How do you give them other things that they can do that are either not role-based or more opportunities for them to roll? You know, its it'd be great to have a little database in front of you and see when players are having a lot of bad roles so that you can do something about it. Because there are things that you can do. Starmot, really good question. Kiotep says, online tools like Discord create amazing opportunities to meet and play D&D with many new people from literally everywhere. Do you have any top tips on building online D&D friendships? I have an article that I started on this and I haven't. I, I keep wanting to go back to it because it's a really, really important topic. To me, building and maintaining friendships as adults is really hard to do and is important to us as maintaining our health because it is maintaining our health. Friendships are desperately important to us. Building connections to people are desperately important to us. Having friends that we can rely on, having friends we can talk to, having friends that we can just enjoy ourselves with is so critical to us. I really believe this. I wrote an article called D&D Can Save Your Life, and I believe in it thoroughly, that, that having opportunities for us to get together with our friends to play games is so important. You know, the game playing is really nice, but getting having opportunities to get together with friends, really important. And I think, and I, 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 this feels right, I don't have the data to back it up, but I think I've heard stuff like this, that it's getting worse. That we're actually more isolated because of technology than we are connected. Now, with things like Discord, we're able to get together with people and play games, I think it's a stronger connection than like if we tweet somebody or we're chatting with somebody in Twitch or something like that, that if we can get together and play with them for a few hours, we're talking to them in voice, if we're talking in video, it's going to, it's going to make that a stronger connection. We're going to have an opportunity for a stronger connection with somebody. And my top tips, again, I'm not, I'm not like an expert in this whole topic, but it is something I think about a lot. And I don't know that my tips are the best tips. I think that there's probably worth doing some research. First of all, it is worth your time to pay particular attention to your friendships to strengthening those friendships rekindling friendships you might have lost i think it's definitely worth our time to do it i it's something i take very active i i, I do actively i try i try very hard to stay connected to people stay connected to friends and and and, and be there for them but also just just connect just to just to be there because it's very easy to get isolated not pay attention to it particularly online, some things you can do is like, you know, A, taking note of it is really important. And if you play a game and you really enjoyed the company of some of the other people there, reaching out to them one-on-one, you can do this in Discord, send them a private message. Hey, I really enjoyed that game. I hope we get to do so again. And maybe if you wanna stay in touch, please feel free to add me to your friends list. I'd love to talk to you more often. I really enjoyed this thing we're doing. You know, open up, it's it's harder. And, and, you know, don't get me started on like the toxic masculinity of, oh my God, people will think I'm gay if a, a man wants to build a friendship with another man. Oh my God, how toxic is that? Right. And it's just awful. It's just absolutely awful. And I think it's hurt a lot of people. And just, you know, reaching out, being, being, you know, courageous enough to reach out to somebody and offer up an opportunity to be a friend with them, I think is really important. And not a lot of, you know, it's not something everybody does. People are shy, I think generally. And they they feel defensive generally. But if you reach out and say, hey, I really enjoyed this game we played together, you know, you played this game, that you can. You know, hey, I'd love to get in touch. Maybe we could do it again. And then follow up on it, right? Get back together with them and follow up on it. Some of my best friends I met just because we played a game together or because I met him at a thing. There was a guy I've been playing DD with for like 20 years. And I met him at Gen Con one year. And I had a goal. I told my wife this. I said, one of my goals coming to Gen Con is meet meet someone, meet, meet make a new friendship. I want to make a new friendship here. Right. And 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 I did, right? I met the guy. I saw him. He won a big tournament. That, that they had going. They had a, a, a dungeon Iron Dungeon Master Tournament. He won. And then I saw him at a restaurant later. And I said, hey, I heard you're from Virginia. I'm from Virginia as well. And we, we got it up. And I said, you know, maybe we could get together and play games sometime. Like, here's my email address. And he gave me his. And I went home and I emailed him. And then we got together and he invited me over to game and we played a game together. And then we've been gaming for 20 years, right? We've been playing forever. He got married since then. I got, you know, So it's really really important to do that kind of stuff, but it does take some active work. So A, taking the active work is good. Building those, you know, being the one to reach out and saying, hey, I'd love to, you know, maybe we could get together for another game and maybe run one, right? Maybe get two or three people that you meet that way in, in other online games and bring them into another game of your own and then connect with them that way. Definitely there are people who are going to be apprehensive about this and you want to be cool with that too. Maybe they really aren't looking for a friendship and that's okay too. Right. Like they, they have the right not to not to want to get together. And and people have different layers of friendships too. I have some people where I will fly across the country for them. Right. I will help them with anything that they want. They've been friends of mine for more than you know, for, for more than half my life. Some of them have been for almost my entire life. I do anything for those. And then there are other ones where it's like, I really like a text-based relationship. Like I'll call them on the phone, but you know. I think us texting back and forth is where we're both comfortable, right? Or an email. I, I have a friend where I email classic rock stuff, right? And that's the relationship that we built as we email classic rock stuff. Would we get together again? Sure. If he said, Hey, I'm gonna be in town, I'd love to get to lunch. Absolutely. Right. But the normal way of our friendship is through email, and that's okay. So finding where that layer of friendship is, there's so much in this topic. And all I would all I would implore is that, you know, taking notice of it, taking recognizing it. Building and maintaining those friendships, I think it's it's critical to me. I I it's something I think a lot about, right? It's something I think a lot about, and it's good that you are thinking about it. Uh, you know, you know, Keotep. It's good that you're it's good that you're thinking about it because it is very very important for people. Jason K says, "What is your favorite cult of all those you've ever run, and what was your favorite memory from that experience?" Oh man, so. The cult of, I think it was Lovatar. The cult of Lovatar, are they the ones that like scourge themselves? Yes. So in one of the early adventures for DD in Horde of the Dragon Queen, there is a scene that was actually cut out from the book where the characters are going along a road and they run into a bunch of cultists of Lovatar and the cultists are throwing themselves in front of the wagons and, and, in, in, and being aggressive with the characters, trying to get beat up and there's there were different ways to kind of deal with the situation but one is that you could see that there was a bunch of thorny brambles like people would throw their leg underneath the 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 cart and the cart would bump over like oh my leg and the characters and, and you could figure out there was like thorny brambles over there and you could convince them you know what would be better is if you jumped in the thorny brambles and then the cult would all jump into the thorny brambles and you could keep going that was pretty funny i thought it was pretty funny it didn't make it because it's also there's you know there's some weird things about that too. I liked my bat cult. I thought the bat cult that I ran in my in my Empire of the Ghouls game was a lot of fun because the bat cult showed up. They Some of the people that were there were totally not really interested in the cult. They were just there for the cheese spread. There was like, there's good food and cheese spread and it's something to do on a Thursday night. They wanted friends, right? And they thought it may be an opportunity for friends. And then the other one's like, no, we plan on throwing people in a sacrificial pit and summoning a giant demon bat. And they're like, whoa. And then they grabbed the people and like, you're going to be the demon bat sacrifice. And I remember the party came in and it's this ancient temple, and they're like, "Well, the temple's not a bat cult temple; it's just a cultist temple." But different cults use it at different times. And they're like, "What? It's like the YMCA, like you know, oh, we were, or the community center for cults. Like, oh yeah, the, the the blood cult they have it on Wednesdays, and the dragon cult they have it on Tuesday mornings. But you know, you always the blood cult. You, you know, the problem is they need a day to clean after the blood cult gets there, so it's really bad. But bat cults at Thursday nights. So I thought that was really funny. And then one of the characters, they, there were two guards that had a one of the cult wannabes on this platform, they were gonna throw him into the pit to summon the demon bet. And one of the characters thorn whipped one of the guards and pulled him and pulled him into the pit and he fell into the pit. And all the high priests are like looking at him and looking at each other. And they all just shrug, like, I think that works. And then the demon bat came up because they sacrificed somebody to the demon bat. And the other guy's like, I'm out. And he ran away. So they saved the dude who was going to get killed by throwing one of the guards in instead. But they still completed the ritual and still summoned a big demon bat and had to fed a demon bat. So that that was fun. I think a, a more interesting part of this question that I ask is why cults? What is it with Mike Shea? and his obsession with cults. Part of it is because it's funny. But like I watched a couple of movies this past week. I watched Hereditary, and I watched *Midsummer*. And if you want to see some crazy, hor- brutal horror movies about cults, there's two movies for you. *Midsummer* and Hereditary. And I think what makes cults attractive to me as D and D villains is a they They don't have that sense of like, well, it's like the drow. It's, you know, they don't have the racial issue of all drow are bad. Instead. They chose to be what they are, right? They chose why they're doing what they're doing. They're making choices. So you don't feel bad about thorn whipping them into their own pit to summon a demon bat because it's like, they were about to kill a dude, right? So on the one sense, the, the, the morality is not quite there. There's, there's questions like, well, did they have choice really or were their family bringing them in and all that stuff? But we're kind of hand-waving that stuff away, right? There, there's reasons why cultists could be cultists and it's not their fault. But we dig too deep on that and nothing's anybody's fault. And you still want to have a John Wick movie where you're throwing people in the, in the pit. So I'm not quite there yet. But I've definitely had good cultists where like they were not behind the, the, the bad parts of what was going on in the cult. But they're making a choice to kill a dude, they're not great. So I don't mind that. The, the other part is because you get to uncover weird secrets about them. part of it is because they're weird. We like them because they are weird. You watch Wicker Man. Wicker Man is all a movie about weird stuff going on. Wicker Man is another fantastic movie about cults. You really, it's the definitive movie about weird cults. And, you 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 like discovering this stuff it's it, some of it is like back alley circus performer stuff right like freak show kind of things i'm sure that's part of it and then then that that's not great probably but part of it is like un- uncovering their weird dark secrets is fun seeing the rituals realizing that it's not just about people murdering people right it's not just crime it's not just violence that there's a there's a method behind it there are rituals behind it there's lore behind it it makes it deeper and it's still terrible but it's like think how much more interesting to me a movie like halloween in which you have just a psychopath who's out murdering people is not nearly as interesting as a movie like prince of darkness which is about this sect of the catholic church that has been holding this canister that has the embodiment of satan in it that's been around for hundreds of thousands of years that is way cooler there's not a, and there's a little bit of cult stuff in that but not really but there's a mystery there there's things to uncover there's things to explore and some of it is like really weird in, in dnd i don't i don't usually do really like robert schwab level crazy cult stuff that's just gross and gory i usually do stuff like demon cults and bat, bat cults and stuff like that but the idea that you're sort of uncovering a conspiracy that you're uncovering stuff where you know other people are involved and you get to dissect it i think it makes it fundamentally more interesting i think that the the details of it the fact that it goes deeper than you can see the fact that there's mystery after mystery after mystery that you're pulling and pulling till it turns out your doctor was a member of the cult i think that's part of the fun of uncovering it and i think that that's why i dig it so i i think and, and you know I mean, we joke on the show all the time about about cults and everything like that. Obviously, cults are not the end all be all of all D&D villains. There's there's other stuff that can go on, too. But I think that it's, it's it's kind of a fun one. And so far there, you know, it's it's one where it hasn't you, you haven't looked at and said like goblins like, you know, oh, all goblins are black hearted little thieves. And therefore, it's perfectly fine to go exterminate all the black hearted little goblins. That's terrible, right? That's terrible. But goblins of Maglubiet, who are sacrificing the local town folks in secret at night, right, who paint weird symbols on their bodies and who whose rituals, you know, do terrible things like that, a is fundamentally far more interesting. And you sure, as hell don't mind killing goblins that are that are sacrificing people to their god Maglubiet. Right, they're making choices to do that. They are bad goblins, right? But maybe it's another goblin tribe who's like, no, we're, "We worship Torm, right? And we're not part of that, and we'll totally help you do it." So I think that that's I think that that is an interesting way to go. So that to me is kind of the interesting question, and I don't think I fully explored that entire question. So, so it's an interesting one. So Jason, thank you for that question. Thus ends our Patreon questions for November, 2022 and ends today's lazy D and D talk show. I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today. while we've talked about all things D and D. If you like this show and you want more, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You get a weekly D and D related article that has links to all of the material that I do every week for D and D. You also get a free adventure generator PDF. You can support me directly on Patreon, getting access to all kinds of exclusive material tips, tricks adventures city source books the dedicated discord channel the monthly q a and more for a very low price and help support shows like this and you can pick up my books at the sly flash bookstore all of the links for all of that are in the show notes below thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play some D.